0: Hi-FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights.
1: hello, welcome to another episode of uh, As We Work on Removing the Feedback. Um, another episode of the IRR show. Um, I'm just going to give it a moment because there's still feedback that I'm hearing through the uh, If the uh sound producer can just uh, pick that up. But um, good morning to you, dear listener. And of course, the show is brought to you by the uh, Daily Friend and High FM. I'm also in studio with the wonderful other half of the show, Miss Sarah Gunn. Sarah, good morning. Good
2: morning. I see I have no feedback.
1: Yes, um, we have very sharp <laughs> producers here at yes. They pick things up and they sort them out. Shout out to the lads uh, behind um, the sound decks, guys. We're gonna have a, okay. a very uh, jam-packed show as usual. Remember, the IRR show always begins by looking at the news week that was. What made the headlines? What got you interested? What? sort of um drove the conversation around your dinner table we're going to get into that um in the first sort of 10 minutes of the show and uh our special guest today um so who who, are we chatting to today we're chatting to the the boss um france
2: cronier ceo of the irr um, France has uh, been working tirelessly to various members of the public through the medium of um, all these all these very uh, uh, processes to pass on the ideas that he has and to launch his new book um, The Rise or Fall of South Africa and mm. I think right now there isn't a person who isn't sitting in, in lockdown who isn't worried that there's more fall than rise and we're going to canvas that with him as well as the related issue of his view that the ANC will not be here in a decade's time which is really intriguing and well worth listening to
1: absolutely we're going to have that conversation uh, just after 20 minutes past nine and of course we always end the show off by looking at the news week ahead. What do we anticipate as being, or will be, sorry, the big news items of the week. So there we go, guys. That'll be the IRR show every Tuesday at 9 a.m. with Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gunn. After the short break, we look at the news week that was and uh, basically have a chat around what you maybe found interesting.
0: Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
1: Well, yes, welcome back to the <laughs> IRR show. And yes, Sara is right. Hand sanitizer still is super important, so make sure you go, go out there and get your Bennett's hand sanitizer. Uh, Sara, it has been a rather interesting week, has it not been? Um, in fact, I, I'm, I'm going to begin where we, where we just sort of um, left off before we went on air, as we looked at some of the industries that are now literally on their knees, the glass industry being one of them. What do we know about that?
2: Well, the glass industry um, is... The glass industry is a large industry. It uh, contributes about 11.8 million ba- uh, billion rand annually to the economy, and employs directly or indirectly over 26,000 people. So, if you take that 26,000 people and multiply it by five or six in terms of supporting families, etc., the number is completely and utterly significant. And the problem that the glass industry faces is, 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 is there are a number of problems. The first is that it, is, it has had to keep operating on 50 at 50% to keep their furnaces going. They cannot just shut down furnaces. So that has been a cost that has had no return of 8 million rand a day. Um, The other problem is that the glass industry is allowed to operate, but 85% of its business is in the alcohol industry, which may not operate much, even under Level 3, and and only when you get closer to Levels 2 and 1. So this is where the whole issue that the government just doesn't understand of supply chains and interconnectedness come in. And so essentially it means that the glass industry virtually cannot operate, and just you know, one particular point is I believe that a very, very senior uh, member of the glass industry um, it, went to speak to Trade and Industry Minister uh, Patel. And he sort of said, yeah, 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 I understand, but, not really, but he, he came away feeling like the guy just didn't care. And uh, this is just symptomatic of... An industry of, of, of one industry that's reaching the point of implosion that is just going to be mirrored over and over again in this economy until it's probably completely dead?
1: Mm. I mean, again, um, again, it really emphasizes the, the the really foolhardy position that anybody would take in believing that politicians, you know, people who themselves, the vast majority of whom have never really started their own businesses, being in a position of being uh, a, I don't even have to go as far as to say a captain of industry, just an entrepreneur um, mm-hmm. who literally has to work uh, from the basis of a, you know, um, having to put together or scrimp together, in most cases, resources to start something productive, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these individuals who are in our political elite just don't understand that because for them, their income just, it comes. It just happens to mm. come, right? Um, mm. And it comes, uh, you know, every month, on time, uh, no issues. And, you, you know, if you're a, a politician in this country, especially at the more senior echelons, you know, national government, et cetera, et cetera, mm. you, you're, you're pretty much a millionaire because you earn on average a million grand, just over a million grand a year, um, and you, your contract is a five-year contract, essentially. So, mm. South Africans put you in a position where you're becoming a millionaire. Now, mm. to expect that individual regardless of their background, I mean, some obviously politicians are from very, they're ordinary people like us, right? So they're mm-hmm. from varied mm-hmm. backgrounds. But to expect those people to have the knowledge of an entire interconnected web that we call mm-hmm. the economy and to give them the power to pick winners and losers in the said economy is perhaps the most foolhardy thing that has mm-hmm. come out of this lockdown. And I think it's it's brought into sharp focus if you're an average citizen, just how much it is a bad idea to give politicians
2: that power. Mm. And absolutely, I mean, I, I'll just give you a, a last uh, um, example from the glass res- glass industry, and that's the recycling industry, which is at the point mm-hmm. of collapse. And if you think of the of of the genuinely poor people who benefit from that industry, um, it makes the lack of Either the lack of understanding and or the, the refusal to listen to people who actually do know better. It, it's bordering, it's bordering on, 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 criminal. And just to add to the, uh, the, this, this, this extraordinary scenario, one of the members of the alliance, Kasatu, has, uh, made the comment coming out of a meeting between, uh, Sura Ramaphosa and NEDLAC, which is big business, big unions and, um, people who I'm not sure help the, 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 community, the economy much at all, saying criticizing everyone, I think it was Becky and Charlie Charlie who's the General Secretary, criticizing all and sundry for putting life above, and I quote, making money. Um, the appallingness of that statement, I mean, I, I doubt very much doubt whether the uh, 1,000 Kasatu Sapawa members in the glass industry would agree with that, uh, would, 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 would agree with that cynical completely ignorant take on things.
1: And again, it, it comes back to this idea that, you know, as classical liberals often talk about this, which is those who generally consider themselves socialists or, or communists mm. view things in abstracts. They don't view them in the context of the people who they often claim to represent, which is the poor. Mm. To them, they'll say something as perhaps asinism, say, oh, you know, uh, you're putting money above people's lives. But in reality, money is a, a very integral part of sustaining someone's life, including a poor person. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have a respect, an inherent respect for people's individuality, that is, for, you know, individuals and families, really, you know, as classical liberals, we talk a lot about individuals, but really we're a family society. Mm-hmm. And in a family Individuals in that family will do anything and everything for the benefit of that family. The individual, for example, you mentioned, who, you know, pulls that trolley around, uh, Mm. neighborhoods, uh, often a day, covering 30, 40 kilometers a day, uh, putting recyclables into that little basket, that individual does that, not because it's Mm. time to do that, but for the benefit of family. So that there is no difference between him and some person who walks into a plush, Santin office, you know, on a day-to-day basis, uh, working for a Fortune five hundred company. Each of those individuals represent different scales of the so-called moneyed um, echelons of society, but both of them do what they do for the benefit of family. And this is what, unfortunately, I, and I, I circle back to my point that politicians simply don't understand at times. And you know, it would be good one day if we can have one of them especially from mm. the extremians who would be willing to come on the show and mm. have this conversation with us, because it, I think it's critical that we, have, we vacillate this debate in the public space so that people can understand the issues mm. and that we can actually start um, prosecuting this issue in, in better terms. Mm. Um, mm. Sorry, I'm going to move this along because I see we have only about two minutes of the segment. Um, mm. Anything else in the news cycle that you thought we should have a, a, a true fight on?
2: Um, not specifically either, Well, the, Let's put it this way uh, I just noticed that uh, AXA The airport company South Africa Will need a, an 11 billion Rand bailout as a result of mm. COVID, which is, which is Understandable, not that I necessarily Think we should be giving them our money to do so But uh, mm. surely at some point There comes a choice, mm, do you support SAA, do you support Exa? how do you Support both mm. um, it, It's absolutely bizarre and, and for me um, I was a little bit actually perturbed to see that the, there had been some sort of rapprochement between uh, Prime Minister, uh, sorry, Minister Gordon and the uh, business rescuers for SAA. Um, but it mm-hmm. seemed no longer, no, no sooner had they reached a rapprochement than they split again and there seems to be enmity in the Business practitioners want to essentially close down SAA. Um, So I think uh, um, Gordon will play that out for as long as is humanly possible. But hopefully, um, the Companies Act will
1: will win. Uh, Hopefully, indeed, and really, I think uh, beyond that, I think um, I hope rather that economic rationality wins. And this is the thing about living in a market economy is that, you know, you have to take the good with the bad insofar as the good is just as important as the bad. A a, market, a business in a market economy that is on the brink of failing is doing exactly what it needs to do, which is, um, you know, not be in the market when clearly customers are saying we don't want this. So to then artificially prop that up, especially using mm-hmm. uh, state funds and really public funds to do that, is actually morally abhorrent if you look at it mm-hmm. in its real context. Mm-hmm. Um, and you re- remove the political fluff that we mm-hmm. use to sort of justify keeping SOEs afloat. So, again, yeah, this is something we'll be watching, especially as we go forward. Um, speaking about going forward, we're going to go to our second ad break. And after the break, as mentioned by Sarah, we're going to be joined by the El Jefe himself, the head honcho of France, Premier. From the Institute of Race Relations, as we look at the political state of South Africa and the scenarios that uh, will play out in its future.
0: IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life.
1: All right, to welcome back to the IRR show, we are joined by our guest, um, the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations, Mr. Franz Cronier. Franz, good morning. Welcome to the IRR show.
3: It's a great pleasure to be here. It really
1: is. excellent. Um Franz, we're going to hop straight into it because we only have 20 minutes, um, a break, and then 10 minutes. Um, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head to start because I know Star has been trumping at the bits um, <laughs> to, to play in this one.
2: Uh, okay, uh, Franz. Um, I want to start with the fact that you are—we are releasing your latest, your third of three books, um, *The R- The Rise or Fall of South Africa*, um, which is essentially the late your, your latest take on and provision of scenarios for where the where the country is going or could go or uh, could go and shouldn't go. Could you just give us an idea of what the thesis is behind this this most recent publication?
3: Right. It was released a week or two ago because um, we're not allowed to print books in the lockdown. It's available only on Amazon Kindle, but that may change in time. And I think, Sarah, it's going to be my last book on um, the future of the country. And is that because the there isn't a few one? That, we're getting this, this, I'll, I'll get there I'll get there <laughs> The reason is that I'm confident Now in the conclusion Partly because They're not only my own But that I've been able to Rely on The most outstanding team Of of the most brilliant Analysts and thinkers uh, Within the broader IRR family It's, it's really a, a book that that's put together the ideas I've gleaned from, I'd say, around 30 of my colleagues over the past several years. And these are people who you know well, your Mm -hmm. listeners might need some introduction, who have done the very best polling on what South Africans think and what they want. They have obtained the very best information on what... um, leaders in politics and business and government think and what they're going to do in terms of policy. They are the leading experts in the country and have been so for decades in tracking the relationships between macroeconomic, social and political trends. And we have in-house, I think, the top people on understanding the ideology that drives decision-making in the um, South African government. And the dominant thesis of the book is, uh, the book's purpose is, is actually a practical thing. I, I want someone that reads it to be able to make good, robust decisions that allow them to mitigate the risks that lie ahead immediately on, on the uh, country's future and, and the world. The book's gone. A lot of our readers have 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 joined the growing South African diaspora. So the book's not just about South Africa. It's, it's South Africa and the world and how that will evolve. I want a reader to read it A family would be the ideal. The thing that would make me the happiest is a normal family reads the book and says, you know what, we can now make fact-based informed decisions to mitigate the risks of what lies ahead while remaining sufficiently connected to South Africa to take advantage of the longer-term upsides. And the thesis of the book, very simply, is as follows. Over the past 25 years, we have established beyond any doubt that ANC voters are sensible and pragmatic people, like all people, anyway. The, The idea that ANC voters vote on liberation loyalty is the sort of nonsense one would hear on something like 702. The um, fact is that ANC voters are driven by changes in their material circumstances. And in the first decade of democracy, South Africa did much better as a country. than I think it's people understand, and I think than the ANC was given credit for. Uh, for example, in that first decade, uh, the number of people with a job almost doubled. And how's this for a number? Ten formal houses were being built for every shack that was newly erected in the country. As a consequence of that, ANC support increased quite quickly in that first decade. Much stronger in 2004, a six percentage point stronger than when Mandela had led it to freedom in 1994. In the subsequent decade. of the the corrupt variety and and as the country's economic performance weakened, living standards began to stagnate, job growth began to stagnate and we now show trends of how living standards are actually reversing, Uh, people are becoming worse off on a variety of measures um, uh, relative to what they were the year before and the year before that. And as that's happened, our polls, our tracking of protest data, scores of data sets, uh, confirm that ANC voters are leaving the party. They're not voting for another party yet, partly because I think they're quite good political analysts. And if you looked at the state of the opposition a year ago, uh, it was very difficult to decide that you could really invest yourself in voting for anyone in the opposition because they were also unimpressive. Mm. But consider, though, that there are now more people who do not vote than the number of people who vote for the ANC. And this isn't that they're apathetic. It's not that that they're too dumb to vote or they don't understand. It's that they're good political analysts and they look around and they say, look, I don't like the ANC anymore. But, but I don't see anything else any better. And, and I, I as one, I mean, I live in the country. I, I might be an analyst, but I, I live there. I'm, I'm, I quite agree uh, with that perspective. But we deeper behind that, we began to see into 2019 election that amongst younger people, ANC support is now flirting at around 50%. And consider that that's in a country where only a third of people are over the age of 35. We also began to see that in amongst urban people, ANC support is down to around 50%. And this is in a country that continues to urbanize. And we saw that under better educated people, for example, people who graduated from high school, ANC support is floating with around 50%. And this is in a country where people are becoming better educated year after year, despite the standards in the school system. And what the book uh, then concludes is that should the present ANC be unable to introduce structural reform, and we don't think it's going to introduce reform, we don't think that Mr. Ramaphosa is a reformer by nature, and in any event the balance of power in the ANC is skewed towards the last of the state capture remnants, and the ideological left. So structural reform won't happen. In which case, what will happen is the ANC is going to lose an election as long as South Africa retains the basic trappings of being a democracy. And we think the ANC will probably lose the election in 2024, or if the opposition is not particularly inspiring up to that point, certainly in 2029. And who's going to win becomes the question. We don't think any of the present players are necessarily going to be the winner. We think instead that South Africa will follow a pattern that we've seen in much of the rest of the world, where centrists to left of center governments are losing power, not to other centrists, but to what would always almost be seen as the center-right spectrum all the way out to right-wing populists. So on the center-right spectrum, you've got people like uh, Boris Johnson, you've got Modi in India, and on the populist right, you've got Bolsonaro in Brazil, and you've got uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. And we know South African public opinion quite well, and the country is mainly a conservative society. And I therefore, the final conclusion is that into the late 2020s and 2030s, South Africa will have gone through a political transition on a scale of what last happened here in the 1980s and 1990s, and that will see a center-right government in power, perhaps an entirely new entity, as different as uh, uh, doesn't exist yet. And that government, given its policy offering and the public support it has, will position South Africa to become a very successful emerging markets. So in answer to your question, is there a future? The short to medium term is going to be very, very hard. Very hard. But in the longer term, uh, my ultimate conclusion in the book, look, there were different scenarios in, in case we don't retain the trappings of mm-hmm. democracy. My conclusion is that in the late 2020s and 2030s, the country will be replicating the successes it recorded mm-hmm. in the latter half of the 1990s. And uh, Sarah, that's the thesis of the book.
2: Okay um, Sorry, I just wanted to ask Given the situation, the state of the lockdown And the decreasing popularity Of the government in light of going from Seemingly in control To something approaching fast To what extent Would, would this experience Exacerbate or otherwise the, the fortunes of the ruling party
3: Yeah, it's a very good question We were we, The book was written in 2019 And I submitted Mm -hmm. the manuscript to my publisher at Tafelberg in November. So that was one month before the events in Wuhan, where those first doctors were investigated by the Chinese State Security Bureau and told to stop talking about a virus. And you know, Sarah, people say capitalism spreads the virus around the world. could have been stopped right there. Um, so we didn't know about Wuhan and we mm. didn't write the book about a virus being on the map in the first half of 2020 but we did write this we said that given the economic vulnerability of South Africa and given the political vulnerability of the ANC that i out for you and the relationship between the two if South Africa was now exposed to a severe external shock, that, that would be sufficient to set into motion the great political realignment. That's the thesis of the book. Mm-hmm. And, and we looked in the wrong place for that shock. We, we'd looked at North Korea and its missiles. We'd looked at the Straits of Hormuz and we'd looked at Iran and uh, uh, things that your listeners are all terribly familiar with. Um it turns out it's a virus. But the publisher said to me earlier this year, do, do you think you want to rewrite some of the bits of the book given, given this virus? And we decided not to because we thought mm. the virus is simply playing the role of the external shock. Mm. Initially, mm. what I think it will do is it will embolden the state capture people and the securecrats to make uh, uh uh confident runs against the constitutional edifice and the rule of law as they've done already it's a crime now to spread fake news uh my my uh some of my colleagues estimate that a great number of people have been murdered by the police and the army under the lockdown uh i read this morning i'm i'm hold up in a tiny little hamlet in of rural south africa that a A journalist not far from here reporting it for a small newspaper was beaten by the police for reporting on the lockdown. And when he went to the local police station to lay a charge, those policemen beat him a second time. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, I think the securocrats are going to use public fear of the virus. Mm. in order to try and set negative civil rights precedents in the hope that these will not be unwound after the pandemic and help them cling to power for a bit. So I think you'll see more of that, and you have seen that. I mm. think the ideologues who are these odd bedfellows, but in practice allies of the state capture brigade, mm. are people like Minister Patel with his mm. bans, the selling of, of clothes, Crap. clothes, Crap. I don't know. A, a very good uh, up-and-coming writer we've just got on our map, Shirley de Villiers at the Financial Mail, described the best. She said that Patel's dress code was Daisy Duke does Siberia. Which, uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I must,
2: I must, I must say my, my, my Google instincts did not like it one bit.
3: No, 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 no. no. It would look terribly odd if you put on all the clothes at once that Patel said you were allowed to wear during winter. The um, point, though, is that price controls have been introduced. The deputy finance minister is talking about the printing of money. The actual finance minister is, I don't think, having a very nice time in in his job. So the leftist ideologues are also setting negative precedents on policy. And for a time, this will continue, I think, and I think they'll do quite well for a time in setting these precedents, and that will worry a lot of people with good reason. But the thesis is that ultimately all these measures will backfire, because um, you know that that poor chap, Kosa, beaten to death in his own home mm-hmm. by the army in Alexandria, not far from where you're sitting this morning, and where your radio station is is based. So just think of that. A a man beaten, imagine you know, take a a civilized society like Israel. Sorry, I just
2: lost you then? Imagine if the civilized society was where we lost you.
3: and, And imagine that a national guardsman had beaten a member of the public to death in Pennsylvania Avenue. For violating a down provision, we we should be a bastion of liberty in the world, South Africa. That, that was the point of, of the whole defeat of apartheid. And I I think that that this kind of heavy-handed security force action will turn public opinion faster against the government. And I think mm-hmm. the the ideologues and their economic prescriptions will fail so terribly in 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 helping. People create jobs and run successful businesses. That mm-hmm. while the ideologs and the securocrats might might be on a roll for a time, ultimately what they're doing now will boomerang on them, and bring about the defeat of the ANC itself, which which is again the the central thesis of the book. It, it's, the question is is you know a lot of people say to us, Sarah, we we advise a lot of businesses, we've advised a lot of entities and. They often come to us and they say what will the government do, what will the ANC do and how will that change? And one of the questions we've been suggesting they also ask is what will happen if, if the president government is one day no longer there to make those decisions? And people look at us with staring wild eyes as if it is the maddest thing they've ever heard but it's not. Because... It was surely the case that we became a democracy uh, 25 years ago so that if we ever reached a point like today where the economy was performing very badly, people were becoming poor, and the state was indifferent to their plight, and soldiers were beating people in the streets, that we could turn back to that electoral system and change the government. And if you think about it that way, The thesis we present in the book is not as wild or as far out as many people think. It's simply a reminder of why so many people sacrificed so much for South Africa to become a democracy uh, 25 years ago. Right.
1: Um, Sorry, Stephen? Yeah, I was about to say, it's, it's obviously getting very interesting, but we need to take a quick break. After the break, we delve deep into these issues, and um, yeah, I might have a, a, a boomerang of a question for France, uh, but after the break.
0: IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life.
1: All right, welcome back to the IRR show. We are in conversation with Dr. Franz Cremier, the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations. Franz, I think you've laid out a very strong case for what you know what some of the pressure points and the push factors will be that facilitate that change in society and where really public sentiment is moving. The the one question I want to sort of throw in your direction and see how you handle is, you know, South Africans you know, we often speak a lot about, you know, as as classical liberals, you know, the individual and, you know, individual rights and the like. But really, we're a family society. And I've been amazed at how, you know, families in this country will do anything and everything for the benefit of not only um, themselves as individuals, but families, but make their political decisions based on that. Um, looking forward, do you think there's going to be, a, a unity, if you will, of South African families in terms of how they view their politics and will that shift people away from what is currently the political narrative, which is driven by race and, you know, the sort of leftist class analysis, all these sort of high-falutin academic things that we hear from our politics, but doesn't necessarily resemble what people speak about and how people speak on the ground.
3: Yeah, I think the, I mean the polls suggest strongly that uh, younger urban better educated people hold different political views to their parents now, I think you, you're already seeing a schism there i don't think in in that equation that either side is wrong though I think that they both right in the views that they hold even though they hold different views that that older generation of People who still vote A and C with some uh, confidence do so because they appreciate the extent to which their lives are very much better than what they suffered under a white rule uh, for so many decades. But uh, younger generations uh, don't have that same perspective or sympathy. And hence they are able to be even quite dismissive of, I don't think they appreciate at all how different the country is and how much better life is than it was under, uh, 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 the previous uh, dispensation. And I had that experience at WITS a few years ago. I try and talk at some university campuses now and again because it's nice and and to get a feel of, of students. And, um, I made my case about the progress South Africa had made under democracy. I shared some of that with you this morning. The students were quite angry. You know, they were sort of young They students, so they were sort of on the upper end of the living standard spectrum. And they were very dismissive and said, you, you can't say it's better, it's terrible, the ANC's failed, it's betrayed people. And I had quite a battle with them. To say, look, you, on the facts, life is better because you don't properly un- appreciate yourselves how terrible the apartheid past was. So I think that schism is starting to occur. I also think as, but where households become more prosperous, they become smaller. Uh, it's a phenomenon around the world. It's, it's been established here too. So I think where, where kids are in, are in more prosperous households, better educated, they do tend to leave the nest. Um, uh, at some point, uh, some parents might want them to leave sooner than later, but they do eventually do that <laughs> sometimes. And um, I think they will hold different views to their to their parents. On the question of race, yeah. If you if you got your read on South Africa from Twitter or from what was written in the mainstream media or what was said on mainstream radio and television stations. You would think this was the country divided against itself, in which relations between people had reached a point of a meltdown. We actually have a chapter in the book that's devoted just to this. You know, the idea is flighted that race wars are coming and conflict and it's 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 fortunately Twitter's not the real world. And if you do proper, in-depth polling of public opinion, what you find is that that view is wrong on the facts. That the great majority, I'd say comfortably 7 to 8 out of 10 South Africans, are very decent people. They do not harbor deep racial prejudice against each other. And they want exactly the same thing. They want to come to cities, where they can find good jobs, they want to live in decent homes that they own, and they want their children to grow up in safe communities and go to good schools so that the children can have a better life than the parent. And that's that's the widely held uh, position. It's a comment also, which I don't think is made often enough on the magnanimity of many black South Africans, given the indignities that they've been exposed to over so many decades and the fact that those indignities are still reflected in their standards of living. But for that, um, the broader populace is remarkably moderate in its views. And that's a very great asset. We, I call Sorry, Francis, you just
2: broke
3: there? Clear? clear, and I set it out in great detail in the book. Uh, respect each other and want to work together across lines of race and class to build a better society. And I think it's 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 one of the most shameful aspects of South Africa in the past decade that so many in the mainstream, in civil society, and in the media, in the face of the hard polling evidence, continue to press a narrative that race is a primary fault line in our society and that South Africans are fundamentally divided across lines of race and that race and racism is a primary obstacle to economic progress in the country. The, the facts do not support that. And the reason that view is so widely uh, uh, assumed is because it is parroted day in and day out on Twitter and on mainstream media platforms when in fact the case is that South Africans are far closer to each other on all the big issues that matter than I think anyone that follows Twitter would believe is possible.
1: Hmm. Okay. Um, sorry, maybe final question because we're literally running out of time. Now,
2: really, uh, it's more a statement than a question ri- arising out of that last point, and that is that my sense is that the use of the, of the race card from a political point of view is largely used to, to divert attention from failings. Would I, would I have it correct? I
3: think so, and I think there's even a poll question we ask is, do you think it's, the, it's, it's used for that purpose? And I think a majority of people still agree with that. Mm. I think it is that. Every... Every South African government, go back as far as you want, uh, which means very far, when Mm. under pressure, has resorted to the same storyline in an effort to win itself a few more years of power. And that storyline has been that it's a fundamentally divided society and we represent you in opposition to them. Mm. The, the book suggests that the ultimate winner of South Africa's political battle and the party that will lead the country to great success is the first one that breaks with that completely and says that's not how our society is structured. Black and white actually have a lot more in common and the fault line is socio-economic and that there is enormous support amongst people of all types and uh, colours and cultures to address those socio-economic uh, uh, inequalities, because it is well understood in the middle classes and in business that should those inequalities persist, they can easily be exploited by racial nationalists and populists, in order to delay structural reform, and um, the 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 thesis again in the book is the assumption. Ultimately, there was a bit of to and fro. That that the climate of opinion is stacking up in such a manner that such a political player will emerge, and when it does, it will offer something that no political party has ever really offered South Africans completely different uh, thesis on how the country is structured and how it might be governed and when that happens uh, i'll i'll tell a client that maybe we've now reached that inflection point uh, from which we will set out on the great uh, recovery and success that will see South Africa emerge as one of the world's most prosperous and exciting emerging markets in the 2030s and into the 2040s.
1: Excellent. Franz, thank you so much. We have run out of time. Um, just a reminder perhaps of what the, the, the title of the book is that you've released and how people can get it.
3: Yeah, it's called The Rise or Fall of South Africa. Uh, to get it, uh, go to Amazon and Google Rise or Fall of South Africa, and you can find it there for Kindle. We'll print books as soon as that is, again, permitted. Uh, alternatively, uh, if you if you look at any of the IRR social media accounts or the website of the Center for Risk Analysis, which is a think tank run by the IRR, uh, you will find a lot of links and uh, the like to the book. But Google it, and there are quite a few reviews coming out at the moment. You shouldn't have any difficulty in finding it. Zara, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very Thanks. Nice. Great to talk to you this Thanks morning.
1: Thanks, Ron. Thank you, France. After the break, we wrap up the show and tell you what you can look forward to in the Newsweek news week
0: ahead. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
1: Information, uh, pleasure. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that we got from, from France. And again, setting out in lucid terms mm-hmm. what I think we've been saying uh, on the show, you know, about the natures of Africans and how, you know, we aren't those teeth gnashing crazy uh, society. They're people actually quite rational, but, uh, you know, we need the right impetus and inputs, if we will, also, um, that, that move us in a direction um, away from, you know, the current uh, fall, if I mean to quote the one ambit of, of Francis book's title. Um, Sara, last thoughts?
2: Okay. Given a shortage of time, I'll just say two things that I think we watch is court cases against the lockdown and the increasing um, mental illness that is starting to be manifest by the lockdown. Um, And I think other than that, uh, there's be lots to talk about anyway.
1: Absolutely. Guys, thank you so much to you for listening to the show. Remember, you can find all the news, analysis, and opinion on the Daily Friend website. That's dailyfriend.co.za. You'll find Sarah writing there. And my videos and content on there, so uh, make sure you check that out. We will see you next week, Tuesday, on the IRR Show.